Eric, it's time for this week's Fangoria ad read. Are you ready? Ooh, I'm so excited. Do you think that I can get through this ad read in the next 30 seconds? I don't know. Do you have your speed reading glasses on? I do. I do. And I've been taking crystal meth. Let's be honest. It's bathtub crank. Plus also <laughs> uh, a lot of coffee over the last 12 hours. So I think I can read this in a, in a certain amount of time. So let's give it a go. I'm going to time you. Get your fucking... I'm ready. Are you ready? All right. All right. It's been over 40 years and Fangoria is better than ever. Each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horrors past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online. So the only way to get them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. Head to Fangoria.com to learn more and to, well, subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code KINGCAST to save 25% on your yearly subscription. How'd I do? Uh, 47 minutes, weirdly enough, but I think I can edit it down. <laughs> and on with the show. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Red rum! Red You guys wanna go see a dead body? Well, sometimes, that is better. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. Uh, Today, we have a very funny guest joining us. Uh, He is the co-host of the What a Time to Be Alive podcast, appeared in the Paramount web series The Recast and Still Holds Up, and is, for my money, one of the most consistently funny accounts on Twitter, a fact made official by places like Splitsider and Paste Magazine in uh, a few of their recent best of lists. Today, he's taking us up to that spot of sour ground in the 2019 remake of Pet Cemetery, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the Kingcast stage, Mr. Patrick Monahan. Patrick, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Uh, you know, uh, sometimes dead is better, but but I'm 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 feeling good today. <laughs> you are here today to talk to us about the Pet Cemetery remake from 2019, Kevin Colgers. And Dennis Widmeyer's Pet Cemetery remake. We'll get to that in a moment. But first, what's your what's your Stephen King origin story? I can't remember how old I was um, exactly, but I remember growing up. The, the family room in my house, my dad, you know, there were big bookshelves, like you know, the kind of the floor to ceiling, you know, uh, like dark wood type, you know, setup. He had a lot of hardcovers of, of Stephen King's, like the It with the uh, little green claws coming out of the sewer, and oh, yeah. the um, the skeleton crew with the with the monkey on the front, which is still pretty spooky. Um, that's an image that is kind of in my head forever. Let's see what else. Uh, the stand with the uh, the two the two little guys fighting on the front, um, yeah. which is another classic. Th- those are all just like seared in my brain as these images, and and every time I like if I got paperbacks or whatever, like the new editions always just stink. It's like just get the rights to those and just put those on the you know I don't know. It's like <laughs> right. movie, it's like movie posters how they whatever the marketing eggheads think is like the best way to sell something, you know, it just doesn't from an artistic perspective, um, you know, horrible. Uh, but anyway, so, so, uh, you know, I, I, I remember those from when I was very, very young and then, you know, I don't remember when, I mean, I think I read this, I might've read the stand first 
I think it was like the bit, you know, the unabridged or like the, you know, the, the super duper duper long one, um, mm-hmm. with like the very occasional illustrations in it. Then I just went on like a tear where I would go to Barnes and Noble when I was like in middle school. So this would have been like the mid nineties, probably just going to, uh, you know, when, when we were on vacation or whatever, I would get like three or four books and just rip through stuff. Um, I mean, like I read it in like three days because that was all, you know, when you're 13 or whatever, that's all, you know, we didn't, my video games were up at the house and I was not near my video games. So I had nothing else going on. So were uh, you a Super Nintendo household or a uh, Yes, Super Nintendo all the way. Right on, right on. No, no Sega. Um, not anti Sega really, but just, you know, never made the jump. Um, I never had a Super I was only Genesis. You strike me what? as a Sega person. There, there are people when, when, when you're supposed to me. <laughs> there is a certain kind of person that was a Sega Genesis person, and a certain t- kind but of I personality. I didn't personally buy it. I didn't have any hand in that. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's just uh, like my friend group. There was, you know, it, almost everybody was Nintendo, and there was like the one guy that was like kind of the 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 cooler amongst us. I think because he was like, "Cool, you guys have this, but I have this. I can play." Echo the Dolphin motherfuckers or whatever. Yeah. Well, you the, know? the big divide with Genesis was you could get the blood on Mortal Kombat. I remember that was a big difference. Yeah, right? yeah. It was, like, uh, it was almost like an iPhone Android thing. It's like, uh, Sega trusts uh, you to under, you know to handle uh, the reality of life and they don't baby you or whatever. Um, I really wanted a Super Nintendo when I was a kid, like that year that they came out. And that same year, my family, which was just me, my mom and my dad, because I'm an only child went up to see my grandparents in Virginia on my dad's side. And these are like rural country bumpkin folk. You know, they are, they don't have a lot of money to their names. You know, she had like Elvis plates and shit in the kitchen. You know, this is the kind of folks that we're dealing with. But on day one, when we got there for Christmas, uh, she pulled me aside and was just like, we got you exactly what you wanted for Christmas this year. And I was like, no shit. Cause I really wanted a super Nintendo. And she said, yeah. And, there was only one of these left in the store because everyone wanted one this year, but we got one just for you. And I was like, holy shit, I'm getting a Super Nintendo. And then I told my parents this and they're like, she didn't get you a fuck. Listen, <laughs> you're not getting a Super Nintendo. Like, that's not what's going on here. And I was like, I think I can read the fucking clues. OK, I'm getting a Super Nintendo. And they just told me this over and over again. And I would not listen. And Christmas morning rolled around and uh, I unwrapped all my presents except for the big box that was basically the shape of a Super Nintendo. I waited that for to, to open that one last. And then just as I was opening it, they brought out a second box to go with it that was hidden in another room. And I figured, oh, that's all the games. So I rip open the paper on the first box. And what's staring at me is a, a picture of a kid on a unicycle. But the unicycle has fucking training wheels on it. And I rip open the second box and it's a helmet. And so what they had bought me was like an ass kicking in a box. It was <laughs> like a unicycle with training wheels and a fucking helmet. And that thing sat in my parents' garage for 15 years or more before they finally just threw it out. So I never got a Super Nintendo, but I did get a Genesis like the next year. I think SNES was the best of the, I mean, I mean the, like, I, mean, I don't know for sure. I mean, I know people would say PlayStation maybe or PlayStation 2 or something, but like the library, like it's one of those things where, I had no sense of history when I was a kid. So I would like, I mean, my NES, I, I think is still somewhere in a storage unit or something. Cause my parents have since sold the house I grew up in, but super Nintendo, I, I sold everything to what was then electronics boutique to then finance my purchase of Nintendo 64. So I, I was just completely 
slashing and burning the past to get the new thing, which I really regret. (laughs) It was like, well, my parents are going to get this for me. What I can do is get four dollars for each game. You know, they'll give me, uh, you know, five for Chrono Trigger. And then, uh, you know, that I've spent hundreds of hours with collectively. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, 64 is a good system, too. But like, it's not the same. Um, yeah. So it's, it's uh, you know, and, and I was jealous of some things about, I think, Genesis. But I, I didn't I never pushed for it for whatever reason. I don't know. I think the three button, the six button thing kind of weirded me out. I think so, with uh, the benefit of hindsight, I can see now that Super Nintendo was better than Genesis. But I didn't really care at the time. I just wanted to play Kid yeah. Chameleon or whatever the fuck. Also, it had the <laughs> Moonwalker game, which was wild. Yep. That's true. Michael Jackson gets a video game. Where's the Stephen King video game? They did the Running Man. There's a Dark Half game. Yeah, those are all but like, like point and click computer games, but they exist. Yeah, but like uh, for real one, can can you imagine if they made? Because you look at something like Alan Wake, or you know, those guys went on and did Control. Like you could totally do a like what they did with the Castle Rock series in in a video game form and make it. Yeah, make it into a horror game. You know, I don't know why they haven't done that. Maybe yeah, that's our million it. dollar idea. Yeah. Like Are a, you imagining a game where Stephen King is the main character? Oh, that's only if you do the Dark Tower. Uh, you do Dark Tower. Right. Dark Tower <laughs> and it gets really yeah, it's kind of like uh, the Disneyland game. I don't know if you ever played that, where you can like just go and and have like little mini games in a in the park. So if you like Alice in Wonderland, you can go into Fantasyland and play an Alice in Wonderland game. So this is like Stephen King Land. You walk around and you want to do the the it section. You go do like a a whole mini game in the sewers. You know, I can I can see that working. I think my Stephen King game is he's it's like a guitar hero kind of game, only with a typing thing with a typewriter. <laughs> and then it goes into a, a stretch where he's like like a speed runner game or an infinite runner game where he's like leaping over rails of cocaine to yeah. get pro- projects finished. And then I guess he's just settling into his routine. Like, I don't have any levels figured out beyond that. Just the first two. But we're going to get a whole team in here and we'll figure this out. <laughs> <laughs> We'll get the rights later. Okay. It's yeah. going to be on spec. He's going to love it. Yeah. Jeevan Sming is the, is a popular horror writer <laughs> <laughs> and the star of our new independent video game. So I'm sorry. I interrupted your story. Uh, you, you read the stand and then you moved on. Yeah. Uh, you were pouring through it at the rate of the entirety of it in three days. It was something crazy like that. I mean, it was really, you know, and, and it, and it's the kind of thing where it really does. I mean, like, you know, there's, there are obvious problems with it, but like, it really does stick with you as like a, when you're young anyway, it's like, Oh, those are kids like me. Like, you know, and that kind of, you know, it kind of has a real effect or at least it did on me. Um, you know, I think over time, you know, I read virtually I'm looking through this as bibliography here. I mean, with a exception of a couple of the early backmans and, I don't think I ever actually read Carrie, um, but but there's a few. There's only a few that I haven't read. Um, out of and that's up until even including now. Like I read the Institute, I read uh, mm-hmm. Outsider Elevation. I think I read Elevation. I can't remember. But um, and then the and then the collections, which are some of my favorites. I think I read all those, with the exception of maybe maybe Everything's Eventual. Um, but anyway, so, so how is the Institute? I haven't I, actually I read that one yet. It wasn't. I mean, it's not scary at all. Not that you know. Not that I get necessarily like. Act- actively spooked by by most of the stuff, especially not anymore. But like, it's a good little kind of sci fi story. I thought. I mean, you know, I I, yeah. I I liked it. I thought, you know, it. Like I said, it's not trying to be really a horror thing. Um, I don't think the the main character King, is like King a has, really smart kid. Yeah, no, King has a has exactly what I was going to say. King has a, a very good ear for writing interesting children. 
this is a little bit more in like talisman kid in peril yeah. uh, zone, which I liked. I, I like the Institute a bit. It's, it's kind of at the end of the day, a fairly simple and not really, it's not a story that's going to wallop you. You know, it's not like when you get to the end ending page of the jaunt or, you know, oh, yeah. or the end mm-hmm. of any of his novellas from different seasons or something where you're just like floored on, you know, the story that, that was told. This one's just more about, here's an interesting, you know, scenario for some interesting characters that King can write. Well, it's good. It, it, it's an entertaining, breezy read. It's definitely not one that uh, for as thick as it is uh, that you're going to have trouble finishing, I think. And and this might be controversial to say, um, I don't know where you guys stand on speaking of like, you know, Super Nintendo Genesis, things like that. But I was also I was also a big Dean Koontz guy growing up. Oh, and Lord. Institute kind of reminded me of a Koontz style. I don't know if you've read any any Koontz, but like the sort of shadowy government organization and kind of like, you know, paranormal, but not really horror, you know, stuff. And uh, I don't think there were, I mean, Koontz, there, there would obviously be like a golden retriever involved in some way. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, Isn't the, yeah. isn't the government agency the same one from Firestarter? Isn't it the shop? I think it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I haven't read Firestarter in a long time either, but, but, but uh yeah, it, 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 I think it does tie into some other things. I, I can't, to be honest, I, I haven't read the Institute. It's been, a, it's been a, whenever, since whenever it came out is when I read it. So uh, obviously a lot has happened since then. It's been about 20 years since 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, classic joke. <laughs> but um, someone described it to me as Stephen King's New Mutants. And, you know, like I'm interested in that, but I'll get around to it. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say it's a, it's a must read ASAP. But like I said, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, and you get the occasional, a lot of the time when he tends to do, when he tends to do anything modern as far as pop culture or whatever, obviously, you know, you get some groaners in there and some things that are like, okay, maybe just don't even try to place things in a moment sort of, um, but, right. uh, our man is still using the phrase booyah. I've seen that a few times and it's like, man, you got to let this one go. It's, yeah. you know, or it's like there, there's a story about, about cell phones and, uh, in if it bleeds, I don't know if you guys read if it bleeds. Yeah. Yeah. But it's Mr. like Mr. phone or something. It's like, like something that. about like a haunted, basically a haunted voicemail or something. Or I, I forget that. But it's just kind of like okay, this is like the the the, the remotely tech interested person in me is like my brain is like on fire reading this. So like how, no, that's not how any of this. Okay, wait, no, it's not. Okay. <laughs> this is taking place when okay, what, the iPhone didn't have that. You know, like so. I'm not. He's uh, clearly interested in tech, though. Yes. You know, because it keeps coming up, like especially over the last, I don't know, 10, 20 years. And it always pops up very kind of violently. You'll get like stories with none of that shit in them. And then one of them that's just like, clearly he had some shit to work out about, you know, the stocks app on his phone, you know? Yes. And so, so he wants to build a whole, whole thing about that and beats you over the head with it. And it's, uh, it's not always successful, but, uh, I appreciate that he's trying to, um, trying to, trying to modernize. A little bit, yeah. but I do think yeah. it dates it in the long run. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, but that's, you know, I mean, I'm still waiting to see how we get, if we ever even hear baby, can you dig your man in the new stand miniseries, you know, the, the, the CBS one thus far, I don't think they've actually done it, but presumably, you know, Larry Underwood got popular from some song and they just haven't really come around to it. So I'm, I'm curious to see. He's like a guitar guy, right? He's like a singer songwriter. Yeah. Right? So like, but but did they did they really play it and I just completely missed it? That's embarrassing if true. Wow. I think you hear yeah, it on a I radio mean, or something. 
No, I mean there's a there's a scene where he he's he plays like a little bit of it and his, where his mom comes to visit him like when everybody's getting sick or whatever. And yeah, um, right on. Yeah, yeah. So he plays a little bit there. Uh, I did this like kind of premiere live event thing that they uh, invited some some of the coolest people on the internet too, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, where they did like kind of a watch along and aired the premiere, or I guess it, not a watch along because this was like a week before it aired. Anyway, they ran it and there was like this weird chat in the side. It was a streaming premiere event and there was a chat on the side where the actors would pop in from time to time, go, Hey guys, I'm, I'm a star in this show or whatever, you know, it was this weird, awkward thing, but the, what, immediately cool. mute the responses. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And then didn't pop up again for, for the rest. So they did this whole thing. And then at the very end, there was like uh, um, this weird, like interactive speaking of video games. It was this thing where you were supposed to use the chat to, they, they obviously had some poor intern with a camera strapped to her head or whatever. And they'd set up all these sets of like, you walk into an apartment and you it was like a, a an escape room kind of thing where you had to, oh. Like, oh, and the chat's like, look under the book or whatever bullshit. And then you end up like walking behind the bookcase into a corn maze. And then you end up in a casino in uh, in, in Vegas or whatever, like, and it's just obviously a room with some black curtains, yeah. you know, up and some, you know, some, some roulette tables. It was really cheesy. It was kind of fun. But the best thing about the night was after all that was over, they just had the song baby can you dig your man like running as, as like the exit music of you know get the fuck out of here and it was it was done like a single it was like a two or three minute song I, i'm terrible with modern music so i, I you know <laughs> I, I don't know exactly what to compare it to but it was you know very slow it wasn't the john cougar melon camp bruce springsteen you know vein that that was uh yeah uh, larry originally was but that's not what the character is yeah okay well that's that's uh, I'll, have to, I'll have to find that i went i went to a similar thing for Hulu did like a, I mean, this is when you can still do in-person stuff. Uh, I, some of the virtual premiere stuff is kind of fun. I get invited to, I got on some PR email list, you know, I don't know when, a couple of years ago. And so occasionally I'd be like, yeah, sure. And like, you know, there's a, you know, they have like different rooms as part of the, you know, virtual thing or whatever. But <laughs> um, it's a, that stuff's a hoot to me. I mean, I think that's probably the most fun job of being like an event planner is probably that kind of stuff. Although I'm sure it's right. probably a nightmare for them until you know, the second it ends and then they can relax finally. But, Oh, they're all shitting themselves behind the scenes. <laughs> it's dudes on headsets screaming at a computer somewhere. They've got somebody on stage, like doing Jay Leno level jokes, like and, and somebody off stage is just like, stretch it out, stretch it out. We're waiting <laughs> on talent. Like, have you ever been to like star Wars celebration? They do this every fucking time, but it's Warwick Davis. He's always oh, the dude that's like out there. And the last one I went to, he was out in the crowd on a little segue and was like just zooming around and interviewing people. And he'd be like, what are you here to see? And he would, and someone would be like star Wars. And he'd be like, Oh, what do you like about star Wars? And they'd say star Wars. And (laughs) like 30 minutes of that. It's rough shit. It's really rough. Anywho. So what was the first Stephen King movie you saw? Do you remember that? First movie? Um, I, you know, I don't know if I have an answer to that one. Um, that's kind of embarrassing. I should I should have this more. I mean, I've always been more of a, I mean, obviously this whole podcast is premised on the, you know, the sort of travails of adapting stuff and his sure. his style being tough to adapt. I think probably just scrolling through the filmography here, it weirdly may have been one of, just because I, I probably came across it on something. It may have been one of the creep shows, to be honest. Um, oh, right on. I don't think it was The Raft, which would be a weird thing to, to see as a young kid. <laughs> It would be unusual if you oh, saw two before the first one. 
<laughs> I don't think we've ever uh, talked to anyone where that was the case. Uh, that might have been the case with me. I think it's what? actually possible that that happened. Because, really? I mean, the first one came out when I was like, what, that was 80 or 81? 82, right? it looks like. Yeah. 82? Yeah, I was one years old. I was one years old. And I remember seeing Creepshow 2 a lot because it was on cable. So I didn't have to like seek it out. You know what I mean? And I don't think yeah. Creep, the first Creepshow was was a mainstay on, on cable. It's very possible I saw Creepshow 2 mm. before I saw the first one. I couldn't swear by it, but I it's it's possible. Yeah, you know a lot of none of these like first you know the first because yeah I was born in eighty three, so I was like I said like a you know kind of early high school in like the mid nineties. Right. It it might have been. I mean, this is gonna this is gonna sound weird. If it wasn't Creep Show too, it, it, it might have been thinner. I, you know, I really don't. Oh no, <laughs> uh, acid bitch. Um, <laughs> I wasn't The Shining because I remember The Shining was like an event when you know I like I rented it or something and it was like oh okay yeah you know and, and, but yeah I, th- I think I think it was probably some it's one of the kind of lesser ones to to say the least in terms of like the at least in terms of lesser entry in the canon uh, of the of the writing at least and then, well know. there was certainly like a fallow period in the mid 90s in terms of king adaptations like the 80s were great yeah. and then it hit it like went into an ice patch and just kind of slid through the back half of the 90s where there's like a lot of just um underwhelming entries in the canon i think yeah, and there are some that are just, you know, you'd think they'd be ripe for like a great adaptation that just haven't gotten, you know, for whatever reason, like either they make something that's like a mess or they they haven't even tried. Like I don't know. I mean, it's just a uh, I don't know. I still I'm still mad that we haven't gotten a great Salem's Lot, for instance. That's the one that I think is mm-hmm. like the most straightforward mm-hmm. and easy to adapt. I, I it's crazy to me that there hasn't been. Um Are I know you not into the original TV miniseries? Um, I saw that a long time ago too. So, I mean, I, I remember thinking it was probably better than the Rob Lowe one. That's not saying much, I guess. Yeah. I didn't watch that shit. It's hard to make a movie that works as a movie that includes all the stuff that maybe you want to include. You know what I mean? Like so much of Salem's Lot for me is like the, in the form of letters thing that's in like the, the mm-hmm. special edition of Salem's Lot where it's like the Lovecraft kind of thing where, you know, they, they the Marston house and the rats in the walls and they go to the um Jerusalem's lot and they have the 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 worm in the church and all that stuff like that kind of stuff underpinning all the stuff with the with the vampires is uh is the kind of stuff that I like the most and obviously that's not going to work in a movie so maybe I'm just impossible to please which you know aren't they doing that one as a series now with Adrian Brody Salem's lot uh, maybe no Jerusalem's that's- lot like oh, the oh. yeah and uh, it's got all that Lovecraftian shit and he's like a colonial guy that comes to a a town or something. I swear to God, I think it was like FXX or something that was doing it. I hadn't heard of that. So I'll definitely keep an eye out for that one. If that's wow. Mm. Great. Yeah. I haven't heard anything about it in like a year. You know, I imagine whatever rollout they had planned for it has been. Oh yeah. It's epics. Epics TV is doing it. And it's, and it's chap. It's called chapel weight, which is like that. Yeah. That's the, uh, the name of like that, the house or something. I forget. Right, 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 right. And it's got uh, Emily Hampshire from Schitt's Creek apparently was cast opposite Adrian Brody. So <laughs> you, you picked the new Pet Cemetery. I'm curious why, of all the titles, why the new Pet Cemetery? I think there's something interesting about, I mean, first of all, there are a couple changes that were made. One in particular, I think, that are probably worthy of some debate as far as whether it's, um, totally, you know, it's one that like on paper, you know, when you see who's cast in it and all that kind of stuff, I was like pretty pumped about it. 
I thought it was going to be, you know, because like I think Amy Simons is great. I think uh, obviously John Lithgow is a, is a treasure. I mean, I like Jason Clark. You know, I mean, I'm not a Jason Clark stan or anything, but I think, you know, I don't know. You know, I think the other one I was thinking of, I was hemming and hawing between this and I think Graveyard Shift. I can't remember if I, if that, and that was one that I had just randomly seen because I didn't even know it existed because it was on, you know, one of the streaming services or something. And that was a real all time weird one. Um, oh, yeah, it is. I just didn't have enough. Uh, I didn't have any backgrounding and I don't remember reading the story, you know, the story it's based on. I don't remember, you know, and like I said, I had just seen it once. So it didn't really loom at all. Not that I've seen the Pet Sematary remake a bunch of times, but I did obviously read the book. So right on. Yeah. I don't know. Not, 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 not a good answer, but you know, all the same. No, that's, you know, we'll take that. Let's start generally. Like what's your overall take on the new cemetery? Like, do you like it or not? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think I thought it was fine. You know, um, I think I'm getting softer in my old age. I'm much less critical than I used to be of things. I saw in the theater. I think I thought it was going to be scarier than it was from the trailers. Like the kids bring you know, bringing the, the animal to bury in the pet cemetery and they're like playing like the creepy drums and they all have right. masks on and stuff. And then that doesn't appear again. That's just kind of a one-off thing. I thought a lot more of it took place during the day than I thought was going to, because the one way you could at least cheat a little bit is make stuff happen at night. And it, it's inherently scarier which kind of struck me, especially on the rewatch, you know, everyone was, I don't know, competently made, you know, well acted by, you know, by everybody pretty much um, just in terms of like the, what does it all add up to? It's kind of, you know, I mean, I think they made their money back on the, on the budget. So nobody's really that, uh, that and then some. So, I mean, I think everybody's happy at, at the end of the day, I guess. Um, yeah. It made over like a hundred million worldwide. Yeah. And the budget was something like 20 or 25 or something. Yeah. So, you know? they, so they, they turned a profit on it. Obviously, the big thing is the is the the change they made to the plot, you know, in terms of like how, you know, talking about the adaptation itself. And I kind of have I'm of two minds of that, too. I'm sure we'll get into that later. But I mean, I thought it was fine. You know, I mean, I, I liked how it, I liked the ending. Kind, You know, I thought the ending was kind of interesting. The atmosphere, at least when they when they go to the pet cemetery itself and when they climb over the the thing and they're in kind of the. uh you know, the, the real pure uncut pet cemetery. I thought that was effective. And I think it's probably in the, the positive sort of uh, side of the ledger as far as adaptations go, but it's also not, you know, I don't know, man, I'm sure there are people that despise it, that love the book, you know, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a bad movie. I think it's just kind of, it feels a little bit hollow on paper. Like I love these directors. I loved starry eyes, their previous film. So I love these directors. I love this cast for sure. And I do kind of like the the change that they make with Ellie and, and Gage. But also they threw that shit in the trailer. And yeah. so in the movie, when you're watching it, it's sort of played like it's supposed to be this jaw-dropping reveal. And it absolutely would have if they had just left that to be discovered on like opening weekend. But they led the marketing with it. And that sort of robbed it of whatever power it had. Yeah. You know, so you were kind of expecting it going into it, which they spent a lot of time like tricking you into thinking that Gage is still going to die. You know, I just watched this last night and it's like they go to great lengths to make yeah. you think what you think is going to happen is going to happen. And then it doesn't. And I'm really confused by that particular choice. Eric, do you have any insight as like what? Why do you think they did that? I interviewed both of them whenever they, uh, cause they premiered this at South by Southwest yeah. back when, when we used to have film festivals <laughs> and, uh, and they were very obviously super into the material. I interviewed them and Jason Clark and 
Jason Clark was like super crazy into the book. Like he'd said he'd read it like 10 times during the making of the movie and that he would like constantly have the audiobook by Michael C. Hall, like in his ear in between takes. Like he, he was almost going method, you know, with this and getting yeah. into Lewis Creed's head. So everybody involved was obviously super into it. And they like they peppered a bunch of really cool Easter eggs around the thing. Apparently, there's a map in uh, Judd's house. So you have like this old map of of Maine, essentially, that has all these fake towns and townships and stuff that were have been in Stephen King stories. And like th- that's, you know, really cool nods. And they understood the material. The impression I got when I interviewed them was that it obviously wasn't their call to put uh, the Ellie yeah. twist in the, in the trailer. And here's, what's really mind boggling to me about that is I can't imagine why the marketing, obviously the studio forced it in, on them. And then, you know, I, they objected. I would have assume if they had any line to object to it and they, they went, no, we need this. Uh, this is what's going to sell the movie. And who's going to watch that trailer and, and if they don't see that there's, you know, <laughs> that, that Ellie is the new dead thing instead of the little boy, it's like, you know, who who looks at that and goes, oh, shit. It's like, I wasn't going to see that movie. Now I'm going to see it. You know, like, <laughs> right. I, you know, I don't know. I, I guess in their mind, they just wanted to say, hey, we're not the that old movie. You know, we're we're doing something different, which, you know, should be the conversation around the, the remake. Because, you know, I have some issues with it, too, and, and it doesn't quite gel. But the whole reason to make it is that change. The Mary Lambert one isn't a perfect masterpiece either, but it's it's a very rock solid, faithful adaptation. Um, and it gets the tone right. It has some iconography that still sticks with horror fans today. So if you're going to remake it, you have to have a reason to remake it. It's not like you can take the track that a lot of people do and go, okay, well, they didn't do the book justice. So I'm going to remake The Shining, you know, and actually Mm -hmm. do the version from the book. So, yeah, they needed a big swing. What's weird is I remember when the trailer dropped and we found out that Ellie gets killed instead of Gage and getting in arguments with people about like I talked to people that were like, well, I'm not going to see it now. Like, how dare they? do this and i was like who gives a shit the other movie still exists the book still exists this is as you pointed out like the only reason to do it why wouldn't you want to see like well where does that go now obviously the choice was made because you know in my mind like say an 11 year old girl there's more to work with there in terms of like acting on screen and delivering lines and what have you than like a four-year-old kid or however old gage was when he gets plowed by that truck but the people that I talked to that were mad about this were just like not willing to budge. And I was like, this is ridiculous. Like this is a, this is a foolish thing not to concede on. One of my things about this movie is that Judd doesn't have a main accent. Like Lithgow <laughs> is just like speaking in his regular voice. And that right. for some reason that throws me so much. He should be speaking in that cartoonish Fred Gwynn main accent. And he's just not like, that's like something I can't get past with this adaptation. I just do not like that choice. You're hundred percent right. That kind of cartoonish main accent is part of the, the DNA of pet cemetery and whether or not you are looking at the original going, I don't, I want to distance myself and try to do different things and hit a different tone. I don't know. It's like saying I'm going to do pet cemetery and not have the, uh, have a dead animal, you know, come back to life or something. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to have a pet cemetery in it. You know, it's just love it or hate it. It's kind of part of the, the feel of the, the series. And it's, it's the character, the character's old time, small town, main guy. And, uh, yeah, no, I, I miss it too. I miss it too. 
Patrick, do you have a take on the accent? I, I didn't. It didn't jar me as much. I think um, I, I haven't seen the original in a very long, you know, uh, years. And I and now now I'm remembering Fred Gwynn as the and it is obviously kind of ingrained in sort of the like the whole lore of the of the story. I guess you know that's yeah. I mean, let's go. kind of in a tough position, you know, despite being a you know a great actor and, a, and a, the, one of the most instantly likable people, you know, in a given thing, you know, if he chooses to be, obviously if he's a villain, it's different, but I guess you can come up with a plausible reason why he doesn't have an, the accent. But yeah, when you, when you are dealing with the sort of so patrician to almost be British kind of way of speaking, it is right. a little strange that he's like a guy who's like got always got his hands dirty and rubbing his hands with a rag or whatever. And, and yeah, <laughs> like, you know, that kind of thing. It, it is a little odd. Yeah. It didn't, it didn't really pull me out of it, but I think that's just because, I was just like, oh, you know, John Lithgow, cool. But I, I definitely see what you mean. And, and I definitely, he's, you know, it, yeah. He still delivers a good performance. Like, I think he's, you know, a bright spot of the movie. And everybody's pretty good in it. The Jason Clark is somebody who I really like as an actor. But he's he's the kind of person that his natural accent, he's Australian, I think, yeah. His His natural accent is so much more charismatic than his neutral American accent that sometimes when he's forced to give up that tool as an actor, it can make his performances fairly bland's the wrong word, but little personality list. You know, I don't know exactly if you could uh, have had an Australian Lewis Creed, if it would have mattered in this, but like there, there is something to him being kind of that neutral American accent throughout the whole thing that just kind of makes, makes it a little bit monotone and he's our lead. So that's a little, little bit of a problem. The thing about the, like the Aussie guys coming over and taking all our, they're taking all our roles. They're taking all our movie star parts. Um, He's like a little more, and maybe I'm just misinterpreting the book or remembering it, but like, you know, like Lewis Creed, like I always took him as kind of a fancy boy, not really, but like, you know, he's like a college boy, you know what I mean? Like, you know, and, and, and Jason Clark's like a little bit more rugged than that. Just even it, even yeah, though he's not yeah. like playing it up, that I thought maybe you know I don't know I don't know who you get. You know I'm not I'm not saying you need to have some kind of mincing guy who's going to faint at blood or whatever. Because obviously he's a doctor, but like it doesn't necessarily 100 percent fit. You know I think he's I think he's good. I think his performance is good and everything. But it's like there's only so much you can do when you're just looking at the guy. You know that it's like well you know I don't know 100 percent you know if he's really kind of what I had in my head. And that's obviously the problem with any kind of adaptation anyway. Um, yeah. Lewis Creed should not look like he could kick zombified Gage Creed's ass. You know <laughs> what I'm saying? Like it, he should be sort of like that, like a bookworm type where he would be terrified by this. I look at Jason Clark and I'm like, if I'm Jason Clark and Gage Creed, or in this case, Ellie Creed wanders into my house with a scalpel, I'm fucking booting him in the head. You know, like I'm Jason Clark. You know, if I were like, God, who would be the guy? I just keep picturing Rob Lowe, maybe because he was he was mentioned earlier. But like, <laughs> you know, he doesn't strike me as like an ass beater like like Jason Jason Clark does. And also, Rob Lowe that would be tough because everyone would be asking him like, you know, boy, boy, you're handsome. Well, you should, you know, what I mean, it'd be like distracting. You know, what's what's going on? How come you're not an actor? <laughs> That's true. And also, this this sort of ties into like my theory about why I don't like this is that. You know, by this family moving into town, they are transplants. And with Judd Crandall, who is basically the voice of this town that they've moved to, you know, by having that main accent, he's sort of exotic in a way. You know, these guys, the main characters are the outsider. And Judd is like, you know, the wise old main dude who 
as Patrick pointed out, is always like rubbing his hands with a rag and, you know, wearing <laughs> overalls and shit like that, you know? So you kind of understand the folklore of it more as these outsiders come into a town and now there's some weird shit going on in this guy's backyard. You know, when everyone has the same accent, I'm just like, this is like these guys like weekend home and they're just kind of playing at being rural denizens or something. It just doesn't, it just doesn't work in the same way. Yeah, well, it also hinders a little bit of the myth making when he's telling the story he, he, because that accent does kind of localize that local legend, right? It's the, the, there is something yeah. beyond just it sounds right. And it, and it's, you know, memorable and it's funny to, you know, to make fun of Fred Gwynn's, you know, main accent or whatever, but it does add something to the story to have this person be the one telling you the history of this town. Mm-hmm. And I do love Lithgow. Obviously, like um, this, despite uh, the fact that I think this was a bad choice. Um, yeah, and I'm curious, what, what are y'all's favorite Lithgow performances? Because I'm going straight to cliffhanger on this one. Blowout. Yeah. Blowout is is the one. Well, that in. Um, oh, fuck. What's the name of the movie? Uh, the World According to Garp. I've never seen that, actually. Yeah, no, it's great. And he's great in it. I've I mean, and, and he. He's he's got he's got so much range, and that's that's the thing that I don't think people quite know about him. They either think that he's kind of a serious actor, or they think he's the third rock from the sun slash Harry and the Hendersons family dad guy. Or whatever, oh, I forgot about Harry and the Hendersons. Yeah, which is pretty good. He he even in that one, he slaps Harry at the end, trying to make him go away, and it makes all the little kids and and grown ups cry. Just saying, Patrick, what's your preferred Lithgow? What popped into my head when I when I made it a point to say that he's likable unless he's playing a villain was Cliffhanger. To be clear, so that, that maybe right. that's the answer. But I, I, I mean, just scrolling through, like he, like he, the like the third round from the sun thing is crazy. Like that it happened in the mid, middle of this career where it was like, right. I mean, that's that's sort of a show that's been kind of memory hold. I feel like a little bit, but like that was a huge hit for like what five or six years. Like that's like a career making role, career defining role. For almost anybody. And then it's like, oh, no, he did a bunch of other stuff, too. Like, you know, before and <laughs> after. It's just it's right. nuts to me. But I mean, I like him in um, I'll go a little more recent. I mean, I'm not going to say this is his best, but this is a favorite is uh, uh, the accountant as the as the um, the rich guy who uh, who is actually funding the you know, he's the ends up being like the villain. Oh, word. I watched that, but I was like profoundly fucked up when I saw that movie and I barely re- remember anything about it. I didn't even remember Lithgow was in it actually until you just said that. He's um, like the tech, the tech guy or, or it's like, an, I forget what it is. It's some kind of big corporate firm, but he like had hired the accountant because Anna Kendrick um, uh, found something that was unusual. And then they bring in Ben Affleck to to look into it as like the pro accountant. And then like the, it ends up. <laughs> It ends up being, you know, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's obviously it's a whole silly thing, but uh, I think that movie was, I also think that movie is pretty underrated. So I think that uh, Widmire and Kolsch get some of the like starry eyes is an intensely weird movie. I, I get like a kill list vibe from that movie. There's some really good imagery in it. And I think they, they brought some of that to the new pet cemetery, which is kind of been lost in the the rest of the discussion around that film as a remake but like you know the part where lewis is like dreaming and he follows the dude out into the doorway and now he's in the woods all that shit is really good i like all the shit with zelda in the uh in the dumb waiter 
And yeah. the scene where uh, Pascal dies is, you know, pretty fucking ruthless. Like, oh, yeah. Shredded that dude's face. There's some good stuff in here. And I think it's sort of buried under, no pun intended, everything else that, you know, the rest of the conversation surrounding this movie. I don't think the overall take on it being a bad movie is is fair. It's got like a 58% on Rotten Tomatoes. I think it's better than that. It's just right. not. It just doesn't push it far enough somehow. Right. I don't know what else yeah. they could have done with it, but, you know. You just described it's a movie with moments, like real, a lot of really great solid moments. You talk about the trailer and that creepy imagery of all the kids and the weird, like, you know, almost like it feels like a, a Bioshock or a Fallout-y, you know, kind of masks, you know, thing going on and and the tone of, of them slowly, like, you know, marching and to, to a drum beat, you know, into the, the semi, like all that is really great, but it's all just like little dips here and there. Like the, the whole thing doesn't really set together. Um, uh, it, 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 but I'm with you. I think that it, the narrative of it being, you know, a shitty movie is kind of unfair and, and I'll, I'll always give it credit for taking chances and trying to do something different. The problem here, and you know, maybe this is a good time to jump into the whole discussion of of Ellie over Gage, but um, the problem is, is that they bring up this great idea of having, you know, Ellie come back instead of Gage. You know, we touched on like she has more stuff to say, but it like goes deeper into the horrors of it, like because she doesn't come back and just is like this giggly monster that just wants to to kill her family. She comes back as a shell of what she was like. There's still some part of her there somewhere, somehow. And, and, you know, so exploring that area of her being able to communicate what it's like to be dead and all this stuff, all that is really rich. I just don't think they, they just don't take advantage of that central conceit. It's, it's a little bit too little too late. I think Um, there's also the really cool angle where it's, it's Ellie and Judd are the one that have a bond you know, so, you know, be making her the one to come back and hits Judd harder, you know, like all that stuff is like, a, it's a really interesting take that has ripple effects through a lot of the established characters and narrative already. It's just something that I, I feel like needed to go up to a 10 and they only went up to like a six or with the idea. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was gonna say, I, I think, I think overall, like just to go back to the, the overall sort of assessment, it, it hits on all the stuff that it's supposed to hit on. I think generally it just, yeah, like it doesn't I mean, when, I remember when I first read the book and I, I I read somewhere, there was a quote from Stephen King. Like, this is the only book he wrote that like actually scared him or something oh, yeah. like that. Like you, when you read pet cemetery, like if you're somebody who's susceptible to, you know, horror fiction, like it actually has an effect on you or whatever, like when you're a kid or if you're somebody, you know, like it, like it's messed up. There's a lot of stuff that you can mind about like, you know, yeah, like, is it worth having somebody back when they're not what they were aside from whether they're, you know, going to kill you or not, you know, and all that. And, and I think it doesn't like dial it up enough, like, like you said, Eric, and there's a tension there with, um, you know, I think that when right after uh, Ellie comes back, I thought like when she says like, I'm dead, right? Like, that's like that, you know, like that was like right at that moment. I was like, oh, right. Like, yeah, this is actually really interesting. Like yeah. you could. Yeah. You know, if Judd wasn't, I'm not Judd, um, if Lewis wasn't in denial about the whole thing, and obviously he doesn't want to talk about what it was like to be dead and all that kind of stuff. He's like, no, you're fine. You were always fine. Don't worry about it. You know, there is a lot to be said about, you know, her talking about what it was like on the other side or, or you know, tormenting him with that or whatever. And they do kind of just kind of let it go. Um, and, and I do think ultimately making her the, because it changes the arc of the movie too. Like 
I feel like I don't remember, you know, cause I didn't watch the original, but like it's much more um, front loaded in the sense that obviously once you flip gauge, like you can't have him like be around and talking and kind of like, you know, build up to him being a little demon. He just has to become a little demon. Cause otherwise, you know, there's no, like you can't get a lot of nuance out of a two-year-old kid. So once that happens, like you're off to the races, whereas here you get an extra 15 minutes or whatever it is out of this kind of horrifying situation where he's like not answering the phone and like, you know, afraid to tell anybody about it. Cause obviously the, you know, his wife's going to freak out because she was in a coffin and went in the ground and, you know, all that. So like, it, it's a, there's an interesting kind of uh, interstitial point there that, you know, makes the structure of the movie different. And, and I, and I think it kind of works a little better. It goes after a different angle of the horror of what's going on than just, uh, Oh God, it's Chucky now, you know, or whatever, you know, right. which is kind of what the, what the gauge thing is. So, um, and obviously you got some of that with, with church as well. You know, the cat is obviously not right, but, you can't get the same kind of nuanced thing again out of the cat either. So, so it's right. I really, the more I've talked myself into the the change, I think, because the, the thing about Stephen King for me that makes it hard to adapt is he always has this, the running inner monologue thing, which you really can't translate mm-hmm. to the screen, right? Like the, mm-hmm. any discussion of like the panic rat is the thing I always think of is like the thing, you know, like that's like a type of thing that comes across in, in, you know, or that's like a trope he goes back to, you know, every so often, you know, and sometimes it's successful. They're successful in doing it or, or at least sort of approximating it. Um, like I thought Gerald's game did a decent job of it. Cause obviously when I heard that movie was getting made, it was like, how the hell are they going to, you know? Yeah. Uh, and they did a decent job. I think, you know, Flanagan is, is the King. Um, you know, I agree. And you know, that's about as good a version of that movie as you can make, I think. So it was, it was impossibly better than I ever could have imagined when they announced like they were doing a movie out of that. I was like, Oh Jesus Christ, <laughs> this is a bad idea. And then I, I saw it at Fantastic Fest uh, shortly before it came out on Netflix or wherever it was. And uh, yeah, he killed it. Just killed it. That guy's a genius when it comes to uh, taking Stephen King properties that should not work on screen and just nailing it. He's got a blank check as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, absolutely. So so, so I think this is a good way to kind of approximate some of that. And the, the element of him trying to have having kind of weirdly, you know, immediately he's trying to hide the whole thing. You know, he's not happy about it, but it's not like he's she's trying to kill him right away. But it's just kind of like, oh, crap. All right. Um, do I have to kill her now? Like, how am I? OK, uh, ugh, boy. So <laughs> yeah. it's just kind of. Yeah, I don't know. So I, I think I like it. I, I I don't remember it being spoiled for me in the ads. I, you know, I take your guys word for it. They must have been so mad, the directors, that they did this because <laughs> yeah. they have like the obvious like the first time the truck goes by and, you know, early on. And it's like, first of all, it's like you got to have a stern conversation with your realtor about, you know, Hey, where was this? And the whole um, discussion <laughs> of what the, what the neighborhood's like or whatever. But um, also just the one scene, like up until the last second, you think, you know, what's going to happen. Like they really do stage it in a way where it's, it's supposed to be like a huge shock and uh, yeah, having it given away in advance is uh, that's, that's a drag. If you lived in a house and you discovered that there was a patch out back where you could bury a thing and it would come back to life if you wanted it to, would you bury a pet there? I have never had a pet that I love that much pass away. My parents got a dog like three years ago. I didn't have, I'm allergic. My dad's allergic. I guess they found a way to get over it now that I'm out of the house. Uh, but never no, had um, a pet? I had, I had a parakeet, which I didn't have like that type of attachment to. Um, sure. You know, I mean, I mean, cause the, you seem like a dog guy to me. That's surprising. Well, I could, I couldn't, my allergist was insistent, you know, you're going to have to give it away and then that's going to be way worse. And that's oh, probably a good advice. 
We both we both are. I, I'm, no, I'm less. I got you. I'm less. I'm less than I was, but it's still a little bit. I, I get occasional, you know. I but I, but I take my allergy medicine, so it's not a problem. But um, you know, like having a parakeet is like having you like running a jail. You know what I mean? Like it's not. It's not like really having a relationship with an animal. So you know, I I, I don't I don't know if I, I mean I guess if my parents' dog Willie uh, passed away prematurely, I, I I suppose I would be torn. But uh, well, what about a very close friend? I'm gonna have to say. Do I know what happens in Pet Cemetery? No, don't know. Don't I mean, know. you've been warned not to do it, but also you know it'll work. But the, I guess to be clear, the warning isn't that they're gonna don't do this because they're gonna come back evil. That's not the warning. The warning is like I'm gonna tell you about this thing. Yeah, you shouldn't do it because for whatever reason, because it's against God. You're playing God or whatever. But you know, FYI, there's a, a six foot patch in your backyard where you can bury uh, any dead thing and it'll come back to life. I'm pretty risk averse, so I think I probably unless I was like unless it was somebody that would drive me mad with grief, you know, I think I probably would. I probably would not do it. My well, wife I mean, that's the- recently been obsessed with this idea of cloning pets. We have three mm-hmm. dogs. Oh no, you know she's very close to most of them, and she keeps bringing it up to a degree where I'm like, do we need to have a serious conversation about this? Because like we're not cloning one of these fucking dogs. Like, even, like I'm not sure you even can do that. Like, I think she, I don't know where she read this, where she got it into her head, but I don't think that's possible. But even if it was, is this not the same thing? Like, even if you could have it reborn, it's not the same fucking dog. Like, I believe that a, a an animal has a soul of some sort that's going to be unique to that living being. You know, it's not going to come back and like, remember all the commands that it knew before or, or behave the same way. Right. Doesn't doesn't Barbara Streisand have clone dogs? Am, am I making this up? Well, I believe that Barbara could pull this off. I believe she has, yeah. and the time to figure that. The technology there. Yes, there's technology in place. Yeah, well, I, I said before, and I, I was trying to. I interrupted, but the, uh, the I don't know if you guys have seen the Arnold Schwarzenegger film, The Sixth Day. Yeah, but, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The repet, I think, is what it's called in that, right? So, yeah, I, I think it looks like it looks like she basically did do the repet thing. Like her dog died, and she made two clones of it. So, um, that's that freakish uh, and weird to me, isn't it? Yeah. Like, am I like, uh, like, uh, I, I mean, it's hard to imagine you'd get the same idiosyncrasies, like whatever you want to call like the personality of the dog, you right. know, I mean, to the extent that's true. And, you know, obviously, obviously we, we sort of graft or project, you know, kind of human, you know, uh, brain function onto pets because that's the only way we can process something, you know, but there are things that are, you know, pets prefer or don't, or they act, they act in a certain way. And yeah, I, I don't know if, however you do the cloning process, if, I mean, you know, if that really, I mean, I'm sure they would promise that it would be the same, but you know, I don't know that it really, yeah, it's hard to imagine. Like you'd have just kind of an uncanny valley, you know, to, like just get another Bichon or, you know what I mean? Like, or whatever, you know, like you can honor, you can honor the memory of the dog that passed away, but like, yeah, it seems like you'd be thinking it's a little off and you'd spend, I would spend a lot of time myself wondering kind of, you know, is this the same? Is it really, you know, and that's a weird meta way to sort of appreciate a pet on top of it. As you're saying, that, I'm sort of thinking that, you know, and about dogs having personalities, I'm realizing that my understanding of my dog's personalities is mostly based on intelligence. I know which one is the smartest, which one is the dumbest, <laughs> which one likes to cuddle the most, you know, right? Mm-hmm. These are all things that, like, I don't know that you could replicate that. And it would be jarring to me if, like, like we have a dog named Mad Max. He's like a, I don't even know what the fuck he is. He's some sort of mutt, but he's like 
almost 100 pounds. He's giant. He is dumb as a sack of hammers. Just he is not. There is nothing going on. He's like a cow. Like he'll stand there and just like look one direction and then the other. And then you might say food and he'll burst into action. But it would alarm me a great deal if Max came back and could suddenly like do the things that one of my other like smarter dogs could do. Like I would find that very unnerving. You know, if he was dumber or smarter, I would think like something went terribly wrong in the the genetic recreation process. And I want no part of this. You know, it's it's not the it would not be the same thing. Yeah, I'm not fucking with that. I think the the whole question, though, is it's easy to analytically or, you know, mentally just go in that hypothetical scenario. I am a smart person. I would not do that. But what's so great about the novel is that you, he takes a smart skeptic who doesn't believe in this shit and makes him a true believer, essentially. And it's uh, the key to doing that is grief, is that you don't act rationally when you're grieving. So, you know, I don't know. Like, that—that that is where the, the, I would like to say, of course, I wouldn't, especially if I knew the outcome. The genius here is that it's a parent making this decision first. It, I mean, the, the cat thing, it's almost like he has no emotional attachment to this animal. It is purely for his daughter's sake that he's like, fuck it. Why not? I'll give it a shot. But when, (laughs) you know, in in the book, when Gage is killed, when his son's killed, he's not thinking rationally. He doesn't, it doesn't matter at that point. Like if you're a parent, weirdly enough, I think if they had already seen, he's already seen how church comes back at that point. He knows that cat is fucked up. But the genius about it is that for a parent to make that decision, that that is that is what what makes sense to me. That's what it what it clicks. I mean, it doesn't make sense, but I can follow logically how a grieving parent could just throw all that away because the the love that a parent has for a child is so primal and instinctual, and especially at that age where they oh, go, yeah. well, he's so so young, and it, it, it's he has the whole life ahead of him. Blah blah blah. You, I, I can see how a grieving person would rationalize it there, like in a way that I don't think it would have happened if his wife had died first, for instance, right. Like he might not have made that call and I might not have bought him making that call after seeing what happened to church uh, if it was his wife. But there's something about it being a parent doing that for their like young, young child. It, maybe it strikes true to me because I, I get the feeling that that's what King would choose. If King was in that scenario himself and he's the one in building up this world, that that's what he would have done if one of his you know young children, you know, Naomi or Owen or or Joe had, had gotten hit and and killed, you know, at two years old. And he knew, he knew that there was a a chance to bring him back that I have a feeling Stephen King would in that scenario would have done that. And maybe that's why Lewis reads so authentic to me. Yeah. I mean, the world needs Nosferatu. We can't, you know, if Joe gets hit mowed down by a a truck, we can't, can't without that. Um, And Stephen King knows it, (laughs) but, but, but no, I mean, I, I think, I think talking about parent and child, I mean, that's, that's a whole different thing. You know, I can't even figure, you know, I'm, I don't have kids or anything, so I I can't, I can't even pretend to know what that would be like. And I completely understand that one. I think it's the pet one where it's kind of like, just have the, you know, have the death talk with your kid and get another cat. You know what I mean? Like, what's the, you know, you know, doing it on a lark is kind of like, okay. And then, yeah. And then, then, then you have a kid. And then your wife gets killed. It's like, okay, at a certain point, you're like trying to fix things by bringing your wife back. You know what I mean? Obviously you're grieving too, but it's like, okay, well this, this one's my fault and I gotta, okay, my bad. I gotta, you know, and it's obviously silly because you know, you're just going to make another one of the same thing, but it is like, well, if I hadn't done it with, with Gage or with Ellie, then she wouldn't be dead. And then, and then, so I have to fix it or whatever. 
Um, obviously, poor He's just Judd all in really, at that point. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Judd doesn't get a second thought apparently, which is kind of a raw deal in my opinion. But um, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, maybe it's, you know, Fred Gwynn was a big guy, bigger than Lithgow, so I can understand yeah. that. Yeah, but, he couldn't have gotten him over those those uh, deadfalls. Are you kidding yeah. me? It almost makes sense for me more if he doesn't do it with the cap, but is made aware of the thing. And then, you know, but I guess, yeah. I, guess yeah. I guess in the movie, he like kind of doesn't believe it anyway. Right. Like, right. Yeah. He's a skeptic about it. So he doesn't think it's going to work. Right. And then it's yeah. like, oh, shit. And then you've unlocked this door that you can't, you know, relock. And you see even at the funeral scene, he's like making eye contact with Judd. And Judd's like, no, no, don't do this. <laughs> like, come on, dude. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's too late, you know, and then he drugs him or whatever he does. And then uh, it's off to the races. So I guess the final thing we need to talk about is the ending, which, you know, was changed from the novel and the previous adaptation. Uh, where do y'all land on the ending of the movie? Even without comparing, do you just like it or not? I liked it in the sense that I, I think it made sense the way the movie kind of played out. I also am the fact that it was kind of open-ended, I mean, the book's kind of open-ended too. Like you just get the arm on the, the hand on the shoulder or, or whatever, I think is how it ends. Um, like in that exact moment, but like, what is the directive of these people now that they're back? I guess is kind of the question it raises for me. If the whole family is converted to like these, you know, cause presumably they're gonna, you know, uh, yeah, whatever they are, like, are they trying to make more of them? Like, what is the, you know what I mean? Like I, I got, I'm not a hundred percent, is the only reason that 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 Lewis is back is because he got killed on that ground, or did they like bring him back? No, they buried his ass. Is that because they wanted an ally, or is that because they like was there some residual kind of like, well, we're grimly all on the same team here still, like we're still like a family type, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, I I don't think they thought about their action plan going forward. It really only serves to suggest like. Holy shit, these folks are about to kill that kid. Age Creed in the car, you know, which which I love the darkness of that ending. But you are right. Like it it does raise questions. Like, you know, Lewis isn't gonna go back to work. <laughs> right. right. They're not ordering pizza anymore, whatever the fuck these people are up to. It's definitely thematically all about family, right? So mm-hmm. so the inference is for sure that the family is complete by the end of the the movie it's uh you have a you start with a whole family and you end with a whole family you're they're just uh now all evil undead things they're killing gage and then they are going to bury him again i like that that is very clear that that's that's the next step after mm-hmm. you know after the movie cuts to to black i guess the real question is like i know that in the in the book, whenever like Judd's talking about the kid that that came back when he was a kid, like the teenager or whatever, the person who died in the war or whatever, this person came back and was just kind of out of their mind and like was was wrecking havoc and like burning shit down and and uh, so they had to put it, put him down. So you know maybe they're all you know kind of jokers. You know at this uh-huh. point they they are only going to be going forward in. And burning every, you know, the the town down, essentially. I think that they're only going to create havoc and chaos. Yeah, I guess you can make an argument that after they kill Gage, that, that's, that they would be a happy, contented family again. But, like, what does that entail there? Are they just going to go live with the Wendigo? Or are they going to, you know, are they going to, yeah. you know, s- sit around their, their old, you know, burned house or whatever? It's like, what is the next step? I don't right, know. Right, because they, they killed everybody. Like, the loop has been closed. They killed everybody who knows what's going on, right? So now they're just right. like a family and, like, yeah, something happened to the guy next door and the house is on fire or whatever. But, like, you know, and, and obviously previously the girl got hit by the semi-truck. But, like, 
you know, I guess people, and I never mind. I guess everybody in the town that knows she was killed is like, hey, you're not dead anymore. So maybe, maybe never mind. I take it back. <laughs> I don't think that they go back to normal. Like, I don't think that they try to, to feign that they're living people. You know, I don't think that that's, that's a charade that, that's going to be kept up. You know, I just think that it's like, you know, what, what do they do? Do they go back to the, to the Sour Patch? Is that where they, they live out? Or, you know, do they go from, from turning gauge and, and uh, then just go and essentially turn everybody that they can. Like, is that what their goal is? You know, I don't know. It's a good question. It's like how much of it is just them wanting to be a complete family again. Yeah. They can't take over the town, kill everyone, then be dragging out everyone out there one by one. (laughs) You know, there's no zombie takeover here that makes sense. You know, they're just, they're just evil fucks. So, you know, maybe they come become like a kind of like a Texas chainsaw family. You know, and they're like ensnaring, <laughs> I don't know, truck drivers or whatever the fuck is going by their house. And, and just like gra- a, a gradually decomposing Amy Simons, like doing like the uh, old cartoon <laughs> style, like skirt hiked up, like, you know, uh, hitchhiking thing right outside the house. Hey, boys. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, what's the alternate one? Like you, you mentioned there's there's a different ending on the Blu-ray that uh, I don't think I've seen. I, I had to look this up because I don't have it, the the blu-ray actually um but i guess rather than you know the wife killing lewis you know with the spear or whatever the the cross at the end right um ellie talks him into burying the mother and then he does and i think that's it it's not as dark it's it's essentially the same ending you know but you don't get that moment with with gage where you realize they're gonna fuck that kid up yeah I mean, it does. It does feel cruel, which again I kind of like. I, I always like it when a movie has the balls not to uh, end yeah. on a happy note. It might be excessively cruel, but you know, I'm saying that as somebody who like adores and worships the ending of the mist, and think that that exceptional cruelty, that twist of the knife, mm-hmm. is the whole reason to make that fucking movie. So I don't know if I quite got that that same feeling here, where it's like, yes, you know, this is the note that perfectly ends this experience and, you know, it's bumming me out in a brilliant way. You know, I, I don't know if I quite get that same feeling with this one, but you know, it's definitely in that same territory. Yeah. I mean, it's dark, but I mean, frankly, this gauge had it coming. Yeah. <laughs> I like the cut of his jib, you know? So if they, they got to take him out too, you know, so be it. I don't know what they do after that, but that's their problem as their own family. Right about i'm over here trying to not get my dogs cloned (laughs) so uh patrick usually this is the point in the show where we give people uh an opportunity to plug whatever they're working on next i understand you know you're a working comedian not a lot of shows right now maybe you want to describe what uh the podcast you're working on right now is about yeah, that, that's probably the main thing I would, I would plug anyway. Um, yeah, it's, it's called What a Time to Be Alive. It's uh, me, myself, uh, me, me, myself, and I. Me, <laughs> uh, two of my uh, comedian friends, uh, Kat Barbadoro and Eli Uden. The, the tagline is, uh, it's the uh, only show that counts down the things each week that make you say the thing that's the title of the podcast. And it's basically just, uh, we err on the side of sort of less serious stuff. So local news stuff, um, you know. You uh, err on the side of, that's all you guys are doing. <laughs> It's yeah. the best like viral stories of the of the week, basically, right? Yeah, that that kind of thing. We try to like sort of make it an escape from the you know constant bombardment of what's been going on for however yeah. long now. So it's a lot of like animals escaping from the zoo and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. If a guy gets his dick caught in a car door, you will be there. 
That's right. That's, that's, I think that's a, that's an accurate assessment. So yeah, that's, that's the show. It's, you know, we've been doing it for a couple of years. We've had a lot of great guests and stuff and uh, you know, it's a good time. So definitely if that's something that sounds interesting to you, I would check it out. It's yeah. What a time to be alive. Uh, it's not the Drake and future album. Um, just to be clear. <laughs> I would also like to point out that you guys have fantastic merch. I have one of your Yoss bean shirts. Uh, <laughs> I, I have never worn it without getting a comment. Well, that's that's a controversial shirt now because we had uh, I don't know if you saw Josh Gonneman, who was the guest who we sort of came up with that shirt together. Uh, he angered the uh, the bean hive, so to speak, uh, when Rowan Atkinson made a comment about cancel culture. He got a lot of abuse from uh, Rowan Atkinson heads. So uh, now it's 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 a it's a it's a controversial piece of merch now. Well, you know, there's important things going on in the world today, and they need to be addressed. And one of them is Rowan Atkinson saying a, a tone deaf thing. That's what that's what we all need to be concerning ourselves with. Well, we thank you very much for joining us on this. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. It was fun. A big thanks to Patrick for joining us for that episode. Uh, I had a good time with that one. You have a good time with that one. I had a good time with that one. Always a pleasure to uh, to talk to Patrick, and and we loved having him on the show. So, what do we got next week? Thank God, next week uh, we only are doing our our main. Uh, uh, run of, of stuff. I don't know if I can keep these week long blitzes that we've been doing up. Yeah, for, y'all, for y'all have no idea. How, y'all have no idea how complicated this has been. Trying to drop five episodes in one week and also tease them and figure out how these outros work. We've been recording these things for the last hour, and um, it's uh, it's not any less confusing than it was thirty minutes ago. But next week we're doing a we're doing a pretty big title. In in the Stephen King uh, library, yes. Do you think that this is the longest Stephen King feature film? I think it might be. Yeah, I don't. I I I don't have the math behind it. Theatrically released, there might be director's cuts that are longer. But what we are doing is we are looking at Frank Darabont's The Green Mile. Yes, and we are doing that with a favorite guest of ours. I, I feel like if we give more hints beyond this is a returning guest who is a favorite then it's going to be instantly figured out so maybe we should just leave it at that yeah yeah i say give these people nothing that's what i say (laughs) no hints but it is someone you want to hear from and it's a big title you'll want to hear about and uh you'll be happy with this episode for sure so that leaves the bonuses we still have one more uh, of our <laughs> blitz into the main feed, our fourth and final in the main feed this week coming tomorrow. And that is our in-depth interview with Bev Vincent, who is a longtime Stephen King collaborator mm-hmm. and noted Dark Tower expert and the author of The Road to the Dark Tower. Yeah, if you're um, a Dark Tower nerd, like this is absolutely a conversation you want to be tuning in for. We're not forgetting about our patrons, uh, and we have planned a brand new commentary for Friday. Hope you're still in a pet cemetery kind of mood by by Friday. A pet cemetery two kind of mood. If you have ever wanted to watch Pet Cemetery two with some people who are uh, really into the the part where Clancy Brown uh, rips a guy's face off with a motorcycle, this is the commentary for you. It's me, Eric. And our good friend, Miss Melissa Kay. She's a video game designer, a film writer, a good friend of ours. And uh, she is quite possibly the world's number one Pet Cemetery 2 fan. So this is your moment in the sun, Pet Cemetery 2 fans. You're going to enjoy this one. 
Yep. So make sure to sign up for our Heil Gunslinger tier. That's our $10 a month tier at yes. patreon.com backslash the Kingcast. Please only the Only the Heil Gunslingers can get the commentaries. Yeah, you want to get in on those commentaries, dude. I understand that they're not, quote unquote, the most educational or, quote unquote, the most uh, informed. But you will never have a bad time listening to them. As anyone who's listened to the Dreamcatcher commentary can tell you, you've watched these movies a million times. Come watch them with us. We'll maybe tell you one or two things you don't already know and also keep you highly entertained. That I can promise you. Yep, that's the goal. So we have Bev Vincent tomorrow on the main feed. We have the Pet Cemetery 2 commentary on Friday for our Patreon subscribers. And then we will be back in the main feed next Wednesday with The Green Mile. Later, y'all. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly. Yeah.